but they became better at explaining it in a way that people would hear it. I think, too, as parents, you know, we try to help our kids and guide our kids and teach our kids these life skills, right? And there's so much to cover. But I do think body language and helping kids become aware of that is something that often gets overlooked. Oh, yeah. We spend so much time teaching people about words. And words are important. I'm a writer. I love to write and love words. But if you're just doing the words and you're not telling people, you know, when you present this way, this is how the world will receive you. And then you may actually have trouble getting what you want (laughs) or conveying what's important to you. Then you're really only doing a small portion of what actually compels people to listen to others. They've done research that when you walk into a room, it's much less than 10% of people's decision-making processes about you comes from your words. It's something like only 7%. The rest is all body language. So it's so important, especially for girls, because we are teaching girls every day how to use their bodies. We're just not doing it explicitly. Society is doing it for us. And what society is teaching girls is not often the best way to go. And so we really need to be doing direct instruction in that counterpoint. I'm thinking back about my uh, my grandmother, and one of the things that she imparted to me was, when you feel nervous, walk into the room like you're thinking about buying it. Oh, ooh, I love that. I and that's always that. stayed with me, yeah, to kind of think about it. Because, of course, we all go through those moments where we're kind of like, I feel nervous, I'm fidgety, I've got to, you know, breathe. And what are some of the skills that you kind of, um, if you don't mind sharing one or two, when people are kind of feeling that way about right before they're going to be presenting and, you know, maybe it's just a simple round table or maybe it's in front of several hundred people. What can they do to kind of get their, center themselves and get back in their body? Well, I think the most important thing actually is to disregard <laughs> all of the information you've heard about overcoming nerves. I really have rarely heard anything that works. And I worked with actors for years. I I now work with people who do public speaking and people who are leaders who are trying to be heard just sitting around a table. And the same thing happens over and over, which is that if you see nerves as something to control or tame or tamp down, you are going to get so much more nervous. And, you know, I think of the analogy of they always are like, imagine an ocean. It's a calming ocean. And all you can think of is, oh my God, I'm so nervous, the ocean isn't working. And then you get so much worse. But if instead you actually think about nerves as fuel and nerves are there to tell you that what you're doing is worth doing and you've invested in it to the point that your body is kicking in to make sure it happens correctly. And none of the things your body is doing will hurt you. Sweating doesn't hurt you. Rapid heart rate doesn't hurt you. Even dry mouth, water exists there. None of that will hurt you. But what you can, instead of thinking of, oh, I'm going to take these nerves and control them, I'm going to use these nerves and I'm actually going to think about just exhaling them right onto the audience and giving them that energy. So plant yourself on the floor if you're standing, because usually people move around to try to get rid of the nerves. Hold those nerves, let them come up through your body and imagine them, literally imagine almost like a laser beam coming on the people you're talking to. It's so powerful. That's what I do. And people clients do it as well. And whenever they do it, people say, oh, my God, I felt like you were talking directly to me. That's because you kind of are. You're releasing that energy right onto people. And I think first and foremost, that's the first thing. Nerves are not your enemy. Nerves are your best friend. Embrace them. Yeah. Yeah. Embrace them. The day that I'm not nervous before I give a speech, I'm quitting because it, it <laughs> means I don't care anymore. <laughs> 
One of the chapters in your book is titled Claim Space Collaboratively, which I love. And you talk about how we can position ourselves to claim space together to amplify each other. Mm-hmm. What inspired you to write this chapter? Because it really spoke to me, especially right now with so much people kind of feeling, you know, divisive or apart, and especially after the pandemic, and we've had so many things that I feel is pulling us apart. And I love that idea of coming together and how we can all amplify each other. Yeah. Well, I say in the book, you can't claim space with a one-woman army. Mm-hmm. And when I get interviewed a lot of times, people will say, well, how did you overcome so much? You're so extraordinary. And I always say, this is my story is not about one woman overcoming a lot. My story is really about how you can change the life of one person. And I think it's so important. I get choked up just thinking about it because I had so many women and men, but mostly women who kind of reached out their hand to me and said, we're not going to let this kid fall. We just won't do it. My father was really good about bringing other women into my life to mentor me when my mom wasn't around. And I had my stepmother, Beth Prentice. So I had all in Alice Green, my big sister and the big sister, big brother program. So I had all these women who really worked on that. So I think from a young age, we need to remember there is no child that doesn't actually benefit from somebody reaching out their hand and helping them. There's no lost child. I mean, we can always help them get found. And then the other piece of that is women are taught to compete. Women are taught to tear each other down. We're taught to have a scarcity mentality And that's part of why we are where we are. And we need to interrupt that and start bringing each other up because when we rise together, we really do rise so much higher. I love the story in the book you share about when you were in fourth grade, I believe it was, and two girls, two classmates saw that you were sitting on the swing kind of by yourself or kind of over there by yourself. And they just came over and invited you to be with them, to come play with them, to connect with them. And it changed, as you said, your whole world. Oh, my gosh. I'm so glad you mentioned that. I have not been able to mention this person yet in a podcast. And when I wrote my book, I sent the chapter to her. She is a professor. Her name is Joan Ramage. I'm going to definitely send this podcast to her. I actually messaged her on Facebook and said, I know we haven't talked in a long time and you don't know this, but what you did. And I told her, you know, you did this thing for me and here's the book. You came up to me when I was alone on the swing set and said, do you want to play? And it changed everything for me. And she ended up reading the book and sharing it with so many people at her academic institution. And, you know, she continued to support me later. And I got to say thank you publicly to her. So, I mean, they have done research that it really only takes one person to change somebody's life. You, you can feel so alone, but if there's one person who invests in you, that is enough to mm-hmm. save your life, literally. Something that's come up several times on this podcast is teaching girls to know their worth. Mm-hmm. And it's crucial, so we're going to talk about it again, folks. Mm-hmm. Why is knowing your worth essential for success? I would love to hear your thoughts about this. Well, if you don't know your worth, how can you ask for what you want? You don't believe that you get, right? If you don't know your worth, you don't believe that you have the right to ask for what you actually need or want. And the first step to really living a happy, fulfilled life is to be able to state your needs. So I think the very first step is to understand, you know, we value as women, we're so taught to value others. Mm -hmm. So we'll say, you know, oh, I I really want to make sure I'm taking care of this person's needs. I really want to make sure they're okay. And somehow we're not affronted when the same isn't given, that courtesy isn't extended to us. And I think it's so important to teach young women that they have the right to claim space because they're so rewarded for being small. I mean, one example I talk about is little girls, point their toes together often and little boys but little girls a lot when they're when they're little will point their toes together and we actually reward grown women 
for standing like little girls, mm. you know, off balance, needing other people for support. It's not a very strong way to stand. And yet we, we reward women for standing like girls who are off balance. And so I think it's so important to teach women like you can be a fully realized adult and adults will want to hang out with you, want to listen to you, want to actually lift you up if you're in the organization. And anyone who's fearful of that, they're showing themselves. And maybe that's not someone you need to really pay much mind to. (laughs) Which brings me actually, in the book, you point out that we should disconnect from people who make us feel small. And can you share the story of anti-mentor Rich? Oh, I love that name. And what, (laughs) what interactions with him taught you? Well, I had an anti-mentor named Rich, and anti-mentors are somebody who should make you feel good. They are in a position in your life that is traditionally associated with making you feel good and being a cheerleader and lifting you up. So they're a coach, a very trusted teacher, a mentor, a parent, an aunt, an uncle, but instead they end up making you feel small and diminished. But what they do is they use something called intermittent reinforcement, which is what actually casinos use to keep people gambling, (laughs) which is you don't reward the person, you don't reward the person, you don't reward the worst person. Then every once in a while, you give them a nugget and you reward them. But there's they have no control over when that reward happens. Their behavior doesn't influence it. And it's completely not predictable. They've actually done this experiment with mice where they gave mice two little levers and one mouse just hit the lever and got food. The other mouse would hit it, wouldn't get food, and once in a while they get a huge payday. And they found that the mice who got intermittent reinforcement, who couldn't just hit it and get what they wanted, they would sit there and click that lever till they starved to death. Yeah. And we do that. That's why the house always wins. That's why gambling, the house always wins. And so anti-mentor will kind of be critical, critical, critical. And then once in a while, they'll be like, oh, let me tell you this great thing about yourself. And people, oh, they're changing. This time it's going to be different. (laughs) So with me, I did this big talk at Girl Up. I was so excited because Kristen Gillibrand had done it the year before. And I was like, wow, I'm following this person who's awesome. And, you know, this is so incredible. And I went and I did my talk and I was so excited. And who did I call afterwards? did not call my stepmom. I did not call my father. I did not call my besties. I called Rich, my anti-mentor, because in your head you think, well, if they think it's cool, then it's got to be okay. I've finally really done a good thing. All these cheerleaders, they're just being nice. So you call this one person, and I did, and he said, oh, that's great. That's so great. You know, you want to know a real powerful woman that claims space. You don't want to know a real woman. (laughs) And then he said, I don't even remember who he said. I wrote it in the book, but it was, I actually changed the name of it. So Rich would not know that I was talking about him because I changed his name because I did not have his permission to tell the story. But basically, I think it was someone, Hillary Clinton or something like that. She's a real powerful woman. And I remember thinking, really? Why did I? And I wasn't mad at him at the time. I was mad at myself. Because we know what our anti-mentors are going to do. We know it. And yet we go back to them every time. We do it again and again. And so that really was one of those final reminders where it's like, I cannot go to this person for support. If I get it, it will be intermittent. Most of the time, I will feel terrible. I'm not doing it anymore. And that was so freeing. And my relationship with him actually has gotten markedly better. (laughs) You don't care anymore. (laughs) Yeah, I don't care. I mean, once you release the power someone has over you, you're really untouchable. They can't hurt you anymore because you don't invest in their opinion. 
I think girls and women have a hard time with that because we are so conditioned to want to be liked and to always smooth it over. We should be smoothing it over. And we don't, we almost like we push down those feelings when we feel like we should be annoyed or mad or just like, you know what, I'm just going to wipe my hands of this because this is not working for me. But we let ourselves feel guilty about it. And I don't think a lot of men let that happen to them, not near as much. No, in many ways, we're really better at teaching certain things to men than we are to women. For example, you know, when they've done all this research that if a woman's having trouble in STEM and a young woman in college and she calls her parents, the parents will say, oh, well, you know, maybe you should do another major. But if they call, the boy calls, they'll say, you can do this work harder. Right. They tell the girl to quit. And there's so many things like that where we teach girls, you can't set a boundary if someone's mean to you. I call that in the book, if you remember, Kiss Uncle Bob. It right. starts with Kiss Uncle Bob. You know, you walk over. We all have had that experience where you, someone says, oh, go kiss Uncle Bob. And you go, I don't want to. And they say, come on, go kiss Uncle Bob. And you say, I don't want to. And then they say, come on. So you walk mm-hmm. over and you're kind of crying and you kiss Uncle Bob. And you're taught in that moment guess what? If you don't feel safe, if you don't feel comfortable with somebody, doesn't matter. You do what you're told. You listen, not to your gut, but to everyone around you, Uncle Bob or anybody else, because you don't have the right to trust your gut. And then you start distrusting it. And years later, you're at work and somebody's inappropriate with you. And you think, was that inappropriate? Maybe I was wrong. Maybe it's okay that they did this. Maybe I should just let it go. Because we're taught from a young age, don't listen to yourself. Focus Uncle Bob so important not to teach our daughters that that if they say no it doesn't matter it could be that uncle bob has a booger coming out of his nose and we just don't like uncle bob it could be that we just don't feel like it and we have the right to not kiss someone just because we don't feel like it i really have loved i've seen it recently but there's the video where the kids are walking into a classroom and the teacher has different ways the kids can choose for the teacher to greet them and it can be a high five it can be a hug the, uh, you know, shaking of hands, but the kids get to decide the interaction with the teacher that morning. What are they feeling? What are they needing? And really giving them that, again, control of their space, of their body, of how they're going to interact that day. Yeah. I mean, if you can't control your body, if you don't have the right to say no in terms of what happens to your bodily autonomy, what do you feel you have the right to do? Very little. That's the fundamental is my body is my own. We're going to take a short break to hear from our sponsors. Hi, everyone. This is Erin. Have you heard of Creative Live? Creative Live is an incredible online learning platform that offers courses in all kinds of subjects, photography, self-improvement, art, writing, and web design, to name a few. I have personally taken several courses, such as A Brand Called You with Debbie Millman and Workflow, Time Management, and Productivity for Creatives with Lisa Congdon. And I plan to take even more courses in writing, networking, and video production. If you've ever wanted to pursue a creative outlet, I highly recommend taking a look at Creative Live. It's a great way to improve your craft and broaden your knowledge. Girls That Create is part of the Creative Live affiliate program, which means if you click on the link in the show notes and purchase a course, we'll receive a small affiliate commission. Thank you for supporting us. She is brave. She is bold. She is you. And we want to tell your story. Are you ready to share your journey with us on Word of Mom Radio? Go to wordofmomradio.com and register as a guest. 
We want to tell your story because when you win, we all win. Unsilenced Voices has been working diligently in Ghana, Sierra Leone, Rwanda, and the USA to combat domestic violence, sexual abuse, and human trafficking. We currently have over 50 young girls on a wait list in Sierra Leone to go through a vocational training program to get them off the streets and out of harm's way. We have gifted over $33,000 to U.S. survivors and are looking for volunteers and donors to help us continue our cause. Please visit us at www.unsilencedvoices.org. Again, unsilencedvoices.org for more information. Don't let the name fool you. Stadiumbags.com is not just for sports fans. Our clear bags make it easier for you to get into any venue that you go to. And in today's world where we are so concerned about germs, the materials that our bags are made with are strong enough to stand up to the solvents that you can use to clean your bag so you know you come home safely. So check out stadiumbags.com. You'll see why we are the clear choice, because safety, it's in the bag. And we're back with the Girls That Create podcast on Word of Mom Radio. My guest today is Eliza Van Court, author of A Woman's Guide to Claiming Space, Stand Tall, Raise Your Voice, Be Heard. And one thing is that women need to be aware and careful about seeding their power. You mentioned that in the book as well, because sometimes you look up and you go, what just happened? And then you have to think back and go, oh, I'm seeing all the breadcrumbs that it led to this moment. You know, it just took a while, but this is what's been happening. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, most people don't try to take your power like, boom, you know, they're really nice for a couple of minutes. And then they're like, just so you know, as our relationship progresses, I'm going to continuously take just a little bit of your self-esteem and your power until you feel somewhat insane and you will no longer actually have any sense of self-worth. That's what narcissists do. You know, actually people who are diagnosed, you know, they don't say that. People don't do that. And in fact, most of the time, even if they're not narcissists, people just are in their own head and they're the star of their own movie and they think they get to have what they have. It's hard to kind of empathize and put yourself in other people's shoes. So, you know, people do it slowly. We have been trained, at least now, most women, young girls, if somebody's out of control, insane, when we first meet them, we say, nope. But that's not usually how it happens. It's mm -hmm. a slow drip. And by the time you realize what's happening, you're so far in it. And that's why you have to get that gut. You really have to train your gut to understand, oh, I had a little feeling. I'm going to think about what that feeling is. And what did that, what is that telling me? What did that action, how did that make that me feel? I don't know. I feel really uncomfortable with this and not to just push it down. Oh, well, and just say, oh, it can't be that big of a deal, as you mentioned. Yeah. I mean, I actually have this thing I talk about in the book, which I think is so important. It's so simple, but it's so important, which is feel, think, act. So, so much of the time when we do things we're not happy with, something happens, we get really reactive, we react to them, we go, oh, God, what did I do? And then we think about it. And then we're like, oh, I guess I was feeling freaked out. And we do it in the reverse order. <laughs> so we, we act, think, feel. <laughs> and it's so important to give ourselves the space to be silent for a moment and go, what am I feeling here? And then say, okay, so where's that coming from? How am I going to respond to it? Why is it there? Okay. And then act. And I, this can go in both directions. I mean, it, it works with things that we don't need to be very proud of. In fact, we should try to change, like racism. You know, I'm walking down the street. I'm a white woman. A black man starts walking toward me. I take my purse and I shift it over to the side. And then I think to myself, well, they look dangerous. Instead of, 
oh, I feel afraid. And then I think, well, why do I feel afraid? This person doesn't look in any way threatening. And then I think, oh, because we're in a racist society and I'm inhaling racism, so I'm going to exhale it now. I don't want to exhale it on this person. I'm not going to move my purse. So that's like one side of it. And the other side is, you know, somebody makes you feel uncomfortable and you don't feel you've been trained not to listen to that. But instead you say, oh, I feel scared. And then you think about it and you go, well, I, I should feel scared. This person isn't acting in a way that's safe to me. And then you think, you know, what? I'm getting out of here. I'm not going to be here. I don't need to stay here with someone who makes me uncomfortable. So it really gives you that time. And so much of the time, I think we feel this pressure to jump into silence. You know, like we, the second there's a silent moment, boom, we start talking, as opposed to pausing, allowing ourselves to feel what we feel, identify the feeling, then think about it before we take action. I think about that, too, with so much happening online. The phones are with us. Space is so crowded out, we can't even take the moment to feel, you know what, I'm beginning to feel slightly uncomfortable, but there's something shiny over here, so I'm going to run my brain over here and not think about this at all because I begin to feel uncomfortable with it. Yeah. Or we just, I feel so uncomfortable with this, I'm just going to act on it because I see this online, and now I'm going to write this really grumpy, mad post, throw it up there, and then come back in about two days and go, oh, Maybe I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, online is like the, uh, you know, road rage in on steroids. You know, you think you can yell at anyone in their car and you're like, ah, in ways you never would if they were standing in front of you. And we do that behind a screen. I have this thing now where if anyone says anything that's an attack on me, rather than talking about the content of what I'm talking about, I just say ad hominem attacks are usually indicative of a weak argument and just let them think about that. And I've actually had people, I have this one guy go back to me and say, I had to look up ad hominem. Great word. I'm sorry if this old grumpy man's hobby at 4 a.m. in the morning landed on you. <laughs> so I didn't go after him. I just said, look, if you're going to attack me, that usually means you don't really have a very strong argument. Maybe you should just think about the content and not attack me. Also, I'm thinking, and maybe you should get some sleep. Yes, right? Well, that's something I would be a hypocrite if I said everyone should do it. I'm terrible. I'm trying. (laughs) I'm so bad, though. There's so much to get done. True. And life is so short. What are some of the most common communication mistakes you've encountered when you're training others? Because I know you have workshops and business and talks and where you let people kind of recognize how they're acting physically and with their voice. And what are some of the things you've kind of noticed that people over and over again I don't want to say fail at, but are struggling with. One thing that's really interesting is when we're talking, and I wish I was staying and people could see this, but when you give a talk, or if you're even in a group of people, if you take your elbows and you smush them to your sides and you talk, it looks like you are in a defensive posture. If you take your elbows and you move them out a half an inch to an inch and do the exact same motions, you look confident. So I always tell women, If you feel your elbows pushing into your sides, open them up by, you know, upwards of an inch and it will make you look so much more confident. The other thing I think is that women tend to go very fast when they're nervous. And that I think is partly because in order to be heard, we need to actually squeeze more evidence into the same amount of socially acceptable time to talk, but we tend to go very fast. And so, you know, part of that also is that we don't want to be interrupted. So we constantly are talking. We don't leave any silence. We don't have a... And learning that it's okay to slow down. And, you know, you don't want to slow down the whole time because then you're like Bueller (laughs) from Ferris Bueller. But, you know, if you want someone to remember something, you can slow down. And you're going to remember you can slow down rather than if you want someone to remember something in that sentence. 
because you can lift ideas just by slowing down. And I think just practicing saying the thing that you want people to remember slowly can make a huge difference. Is there a public speaker that you feel really does that well that you kind of say, you know what, go watch how this person is working an audience, how they're kind of using the slowdown in the book, as you mentioned, some other tactics, but how they kind of present themselves and get their audience captivated with their voice alone. Well, saying go watch her and thinking you could be anything like her would be like saying, in my mind, you can be like, you know, Athena. But, um, <laughs> but, but Maya Angelou, Dr. Maya Angelou is my hero. Um, I, her books probably kept me alive when I was younger. Her book of poetry, her autobiographies, I just love them. I saw her speak in college once. And then I was the head of the women's organization, so I got to go backstage and watch her talk to everybody. I was so scared in that point in my life. I was so afraid of making a mistake that I didn't talk to her. It's one of the greatest regrets of my life. But I kind of hung near her the whole time (laughs) trying to hear her and what she said to people. And she has a way of speaking slowly and really letting people know, you know what, I don't need to go fast. You can wait for me to be done. And that's okay. I have something that I believe is important. And I'm going to think about it. And I'm not going to rush it. And watching her give her talks, she I think is the best public speaker I've ever seen in my life, hands down. But then again, I think we all know, you know, you could listen to my Angela Rita phone book. If you haven't listened to her, go listen to any of her poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, watch her do I Rise. Just Google my Angela I Rise and your mind will be blown. Yes, luckily um, she's passed away, but YouTube still has so many of her wonderful speeches with us. She did, I believe, Clinton's inauguration and a speech there. Yeah, she had an interview about that that was so great. And I thought every writer should hear it. They, they said, well, what's your writing process? And she said, I go to a hotel and I write and I write on a pad of paper. And she says, and most of it is not that good. <laughs> and some of it is good. And that's what I use. And then they said, what did you think of the writing you did for the inauguration? She said, well, I didn't have much time. (laughs) So for the amount of time I had, it was good. She's just really in her center in a way that I think so few human beings are. And that was a great poem, but she's right. I don't think it was her best poem. It was a very solid poem. For anyone else, it'd be perfect, but she's my Angelou. So, you know, she has more than perfect out there. I think creatives are often really hard on themselves because they think, why am I not getting this right off the bat perfect? And it takes work and it takes time. And, you know, even learning how to perform in a space, like even to speak. I think people don't sometimes don't realize that speakers and presenters, like they have practiced and practiced and practiced till they're blue in the face before they get up in front of someone. Everybody on TED has practiced. I mean, the secret to speaking is the more spontaneous they look, the more they've probably done the speech and have every little moment memorized and they know how the audience laughs and where they laugh and practice does not make you look automatized. You know, it it makes you look spontaneous because you're not reaching for words. So absolutely. I mean, no one would ever put someone, I always say to people when I do coaching and I do workshops on persuasive communication or public speaking, no one would ever put you on the top of a hill with skis on and be like, Hey, I'm going to push you down here. And you should just intuitively know how to ski. No one would do that. It'd be absurd. And yet we're like, hey, you should go do a speech. Good luck. <laughs> They've never done it before. You know, direct instruction and, and communication is uh, communication is absolutely learnable. And it 
absolutely is something that if you commit to doing it, you can get really good at it. It's like anything else. It just takes work. And it's so essential, though, to whatever career you choose. That's one of the things that frustrates me is that I see everyone trying to move ahead, you know, get rise up in whatever career they've chosen, but no one has ever sat down and said, hey, how are you going to sell yourself, your idea, your product, your dream? How are you going to promote yourself to others? No one sits down and says, let me show you some skills about this. Absolutely. Unless they go seek it out themselves, like in speech class. Yeah. And most speech classes are truly terrible. They're gendered, you yeah. know, so they work really well for men and not so well for women. And so they teach things, you know, I have so many people in workshops say, well, I did this speech class and I got worse. And I say, what'd they teach you? And it's something that's unbelievably gendered. And so it's really important that either you make a real effort to make sure every gender that you're working with is, is being accommodated and you're really listening and trying to customize or just work with, you know, I'm going to do a thing for just women or just men, because we really do have different societal things that we face and therefore different communication patterns can emerge. But I couldn't agree more. I mean, obviously it's my passion, but I see how people's lives are transformed from one workshop, <laughs> one workshop, because no one's just ever taught this stuff before. And once you learn it, it's so empowering. It's like seeing the, you know, the coding of the matrix. It's like, get it. What three pieces of advice would you give to girls who are interested in pursuing, they kind of dream about doing a TED Talk or speaking or just acting or being up on a stage, but being this, you know, presenting something, whether it's themselves or an artwork, what three pieces of advice would you give them? The first piece of advice is parents love you with all their heart. I know I'm a mom and they're going to be afraid if you're going into the arts. They're going to say, oh, don't do that. You know, you're going to end up being on, you know, drugs on the street. <laughs> it's a terrible life. It's very hard. And I have taught countless people. And what I have found is it's a war of attrition. People who stick with it will end up in some part of the arts and they will be very, very happy, really happy. If you give up and you become an accountant and you don't want to be an accountant, you're going to be miserable. So do what you love and success will follow and try to drown out the noise of people who say, you know, I don't, sorry, you know, you're not gonna be able to do this. It's hard. You know, all the good things in life that are worth doing are hard. The, the second thing is when you're talking to somebody, you know, understand that people often will put you in a box. They'll say, you know, oh, you're this because you're that at that age. And that doesn't mean anything. I was dyslexic. I couldn't read forever. I was a very late reader. I have probably minor dysgraphia, which means that my handwriting is terrible. So people thought that I wasn't very smart because back in the day, we weren't typing, we were writing. And it took me a long time to even know how to write. And so people didn't really associate with me as being a very good student. And in high school, I sort of got my groove. And then in college, I was testing out of writing requirements. So, you know, who you are now, like you don't know who you are now. You have no idea. So how could anyone else know who you are? So allow yourself to grow and breathe and discover what you love and don't let the voices of anti-mentors dictate what you're going to do with your life. And I think the final thing is you are going to be facing a lot of people 
who will not treat you well, particularly if you're a woman of color, and they're not going to do it on purpose. They're just going to have certain assumptions. Sometimes not treating well will be mansplaining, but sometimes it'll be straight up, you know, not hiring you because, you know, they're used to their friend Bob applied and they don't realize that if they only let Bob from their fraternity or whatever it is get, you know, my friend who's in a fraternity told me this, you know, if he hires us all, he's like, I realized at one point I can't hire all my fraternity brothers because then I'm really not letting in other demographics. So, you know, make, people are going to do that. And the thing that you need to do to do a counterpoint to that is build relationships with people of all backgrounds, with women, with men, with people of all races. Diversify your network and build your network. If you can do that, then you're really untouchable because when things are hard, you're going to have people to catch you. And it can be hard to build relationships with people who don't look like you or don't have the same background, but it is so worth it. Build your network and make sure it's not all people who look like you. That is transformative. Can you tell us about your podcast? Yeah. So my podcast is surprisingly called Claim Your Space. <laughs> so, and what I do, actually, here's a little picture of it. Claim yeah. your space. There I am <laughs> doing graffiti, <laughs> which I call street art. Uh, I have to know some great street artists. It's a podcast where I interview women who are doing extraordinary things. I think the thing that sets it apart from some other podcasts is that a lot of times people I find talk about what's going on, what's wrong in the world. You know, mm -hmm. what are we facing as women? What are the stats? All of these things. And that's really, really important to understand problems. You can't fix a problem if you don't know it exists and you don't know the details about it. But it's really equally important to give solutions. So every one of my podcasts, at the end of the podcast, I ask people to list three things that they think are important to make the lives of women or of themselves better. And it's very much action focused on how do we uplift our own life and how do we uplift other people. And actually, I think in about a month, I'll be dropping the second season and it's going to have some amazing people. But season one, if you want to catch up, I mean, these women are just one of them is working on like solving climate change, you know, it's like very cool. So yeah, it's, that's what it's about is really highlighting brilliant, wonderful women and finding ways that you can make your life and the lives of other women better. Amazing. We will put a link in our show notes. Eliza Van Court, thank you so much for being with us today on Girls That Create. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And I really think what you're doing is phenomenal. So thanks for doing it. Thank you. And that's a wrap on season one of the Girls That Create podcast on Word of Mom Radio. We can't wait to return for season two and continue bringing you more engaging topics and insights. Sign up for the Girls That Create newsletter, link in show notes, so you'll know when our next season launches in 2024. And don't forget to visit our website, www.girlsthatcreate.com, for new stories. We will close out with our theme song by Smith Sisters and the Sunday Drivers. Till next time, this is Erin Prather Stafford. She is sure, she is sure, she is strong, she is strong, she is true.